There's a saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, you've heard that. Mayor Richard Daley ruled Chicago as mayor for 21 years. Most who worked with him knew him to be a man of an enormous ego. On one occasion, one of his speechwriters came to him and asked if he could have a raise in pay. Daly responded quickly that there would be no raise forthcoming. He said, you're getting paid enough already, and besides, it should be enough for you that you work with a great American hero like myself. Two weeks later, Daly was on his way to give a speech to a large gathering of American veterans. The speech would receive national attention. As he stood before a vast crowd, waiting to hear his comments, he opened the speech and began to read it for the first time. I'm concerned, he said, I'm concerned for you. My heart goes out for you. I am deeply convinced that this country needs to take better care of its veterans. And so today, I am proposing a 10-point plan that will engage both the city, the state, and the federal government to take care of our veterans. He then turned the page, and on it was written, you're on your own now, you great American hero. Have you ever lived with, voted for, served under, answered to, been asked to defend or support someone who abuses power? And have you ever secretly wondered, hoped that something like that would happen to them. The historian Henry Adams says that power is like a tumor that attaches itself to one's personality and ends up killing the victim's sympathies. He was a historian, I say, and not a doctor, but he was not far from the truth. Another who was a doctor, uh, Suvinder Obhi from McMaster University in Ontario, a neuroscientist, actually studied the brains of people after they had been under the influence of power for a number of years and noted that it was creating new neural pathways that were visible in imagery on a person's brain. Another person whose name was Dr. Kentler, who is a doctor of psychology at University of California, Berkeley, has studied people who have power for more than two decades. And he noticed what he called a hubris syndrome. In Kentler's words, they acted as if they had suffered traumatic brain injury. There was a disorder of the possession of power, particularly the power that has come through overwhelming success held for a period of years and with minimal constraint on the leader. 
Together with his colleague, they published an article in Brain Magazine in 2009, and they listed 14 clinical symptoms that people who suffer with a hubris syndrome possess. They manifest contempt for others. There is a loss of contact with reality. There is a restless and impulsive behavior, frequent displays of incompetence, less capacity to empathize, less adept at seeing something from another's point of view. He talks about what he calls the power paradox. He says people usually gain power by using traits and actions that advance the interests of others. Things like empathy, collaboration, openness, fairness, sharing. But once a person begins to feel the effect of power, these qualities fade. We must not hide behind the fact that we are not in charge in our jobs. For the truth is, we all have some kind of power. We have power in our families. We have it in our classrooms. We have it in our offices. We have it in our voice on social media. We have it in our experience. We have it in our tenure. The question is not whether you have power, it's where. So I want to speak, if I can, to people who have power and people who live under power that's been corrupted because I wonder if they're not the same people. Have we not in the last year, each one of us, come to some point where we were frustrated with the leaders that were over us? Have we not looked at our bosses our leaders, our parents, teachers, police officers, city officials who say one thing and do another, who rule from over top of the community rather than in it, who say rude and insensitive things, who blame others when something goes wrong. Have we not all been in some conversation like this? They call for peace, we say, and then declare war on the other side. They call for justice and then say the most uncivil things. They scoff at honor and then they're shocked when traitors arise. They tolerate cruel and oppressive conditions and then complain when the followers revolt. And we ask ourselves, who are these people and how do you deal with them? When Jesus told us to love our enemies, he surely had them in mind. And the good news is he never asked us to do anything he himself was not also doing. So the place to turn to study how Jesus dealt with his enemies is in John chapter 11. Right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, a collection of Jesus' enemies 
converge for the first time in Caiaphas's house. There are the Pharisees who are like a conservative layperson, an expert in the Torah. They're the reforming party. They're calling Israel back to its roots. Think of the Tea Party in America. Then there are the priests. This is Israel's clergy. They serve in the temple at the ritual of cleanliness. They dedicate children. They receive confessions. They receive the tithes. Their power is cultic or numinous. Then there's the Sanhedrin, which is like Israel's Supreme Court. It's 70 or 71 elders, mostly clergy and laity, and they determine the rules. They interpret the law. And like the Supreme Court, they're on for life and their decisions are final. And this is a theocratic society. And so to interpret the law is to interpret the land. These three forces, the Pharisees, the clergy, and the Sanhedrin have different kinds of power. The Pharisees have a political or a populist power. The clergy has a numinous or a cultic power. The Sanhedrin has a legislative or a legal power. Each one of them has dealt with Jesus on their own sometime in the past. And almost every time he beat them one-on-one. -on -one. Now they converge in Caiaphas's house each with their own body of work, each with their own following, each a member of Israel's elite class, each in their positions for a long tenure, each a little angry at losing one-on-one. -on -one. Now together in Caiaphas's house, I think there's a collective force there's a social dynamic that is happening in that room. For the first time, someone is able to say, we ought to kill him. And they begin to plot the murder of Jesus. This is striking. A man who has himself murdered no one. A man who has committed none of the five death sentences. And beyond that, they're even willing to kill Lazarus, whom Jesus just raised from the dead. This is a remarkable, unsettling phrase. These people are the religious elite in the land, and they have allied themselves to kill Jesus and Lazarus simply because he's a friend of Jesus. And you got to ask yourself, how much hatred can a person have? And yet they hide behind the fact that they are religious people. They justify 
their malice with their status. And they justify it with their agenda. In the middle of the argument, Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and says, you people don't know anything. It is better for us that one person die for the country than that the entire country perish. If this continues to go on, the Romans will come in and take our temple and take our land. He isn't lying. 40 years later, that is exactly what happened. The Romans came in and burned the temple and took the land. And people, what rattles me is that this is an argument made by religious leaders who are ensconced in their positions and in their assumptions. And once they have come together in Caiaphas's house, they are emboldened to do things that none of them dared try alone. And their feelings and their intensity has insulated them from any dissenting views. And now they are ready to amplify their malice and kill someone like Lazarus who has not done anything to them. This ought to frighten us. We are religious people who sometimes have been emboldened in our gatherings. And we have become insulated inside of our arguments. Our assumptions have grown up onto us like barnacles on a boat or tumors in a body, and they have started to distort our personalities. And it is shocking to me what Christians can call for today in the name of justice. Our agenda is right we are saving the temple and saving the land. Therefore, we must crush the opposition. People, our problem is not with our agenda. Our problem is with our culture. Our problem is with the kind of power we are using. We are simply using the same kind of power against our enemies that our enemies are using against us and often justifying this in the name of the outcome. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not be.
Meanwhile, there is in another community, in Bethany, Bet-Ani, house of the poor, a social gathering in a dinner put on for Jesus. And in the middle of a dinner in this tiny house in Bethany, Mary comes into a room reserved for men and sneaks around the back of Jesus's feet and begins to pour an expensive perfume on Jesus's feet. And John is clear to tell us in chapter 12 that the price of this perfume was a year's wages. Think about this. Here is a woman who lives in the house of the poor pouring the entire year's salary onto the feet of Jesus. And John says in verse three of chapter 12, when she pours it, the fragrance fills up the house. Anywhere you go in the house, you can smell the fragrance of what this poor woman has done. And right here is a contrast between the house of Caiaphas and the house of the poor. And here is the contrast between two different kinds of power. And you have to ask yourself which house you're in. Is it the house that tries to bring other people down or is it a house that tries to elevate another person who is your superior? Is it a house driven by fear and anger and pride or is it a house that is motivated by love? Is it a house that protects itself or is it a house that pours itself out? The question is not your agenda. The question is not your arguments. It's your life. It's your culture. Your best argument is your life. At the end of his article on this, Dr. Cantler, the, the, the psychologist from Berkeley, talks about what is it we can do to overcome this, this creeping sickness that happens to us after we have succeeded and been in our positions for a long period of time and not been contested by very many people. His conclusion is it is inevitable <laughs> and it's incurable. Have a nice day. Oh, man, I came away from that rattled. I thought, oh no. I 
been here almost 20 years. I've lived with Lori 39. I've been a dad for 35. I don't have a presence on social media. But I have a big mouth. <laughs> I, and I have a small following. And I, I wrestled with how I was stewarding that power. One more time, people. It does no good to say you don't have it. You're hiding you're hiding. You're hiding. You have it. If you don't know where it is, the people who live next to you know very well where it is. And if they see it as unpredictable and unsafe, it is the household of Caiaphas. So I study Jesus' movement in John chapter 12 to see if there is a cure for power. I found one, and it is this. If you want to break power, you must lose. You must lose. The prevailing culture today is a culture of domination. It's a culture of threat, manipulation, duplicity. It's a culture of overwhelming, a culture of violence. And the only way we can resist this culture is to lose to it. Because as Rene Girard points out, it is in the losing society becomes aware of the difference. The power of Jesus is that he lived consistently a narrative that was opposite the one they painted about him. So it was essential that he not fight their power with the same kind of power. It was essential that he live under their power in a spirit of humility and grace and deference and kindness. He must live out what Gerard called the scandal, the stumbling block, the one piece of evidence, his life, that they were wrong about him. Then when they crucify him, it is evident to the world what kind of person he is, what kind of person they are, and what their agenda is, and it is evident that it is possible, after all, to be a different kind of person. You don't have to live in the house of Caiaphas. 
You can live in the house of the poor. You can pour yourself out. You can elevate your enemies. And you will lose. But as Beekner says, it will be a magnificent defeat. Is this not what Paul meant in Colossians 2, where he said, on the cross, he made a spectacle of his enemies, nailing his enemies to the cross. Finally, their agenda was clear to the world. The power that corrupts lives on casting the narrative about us as if we are the other people, the enemy. But when we refuse to live in the narrative of somebody else's enemy, we just live out as Jesus did, a life of humility and quietness and peacefulness. It is our enemies who lose and not us. Now I know when I say this, that this is so much easier to, to say than to do. Do you understand? Every movie we watch is a contest between two powers. The same power. It's a power of threat, violence, Manipulation, destruction, unlimited retaliation. It's a power that says, if you take one eye, I take both. You take one tooth, I take your whole mouth. It's a power that says, glory and strength is in limited supply. And the more of it our enemies have, the less there is for ourselves. So we must put our enemies in their place so they will learn that they will never mess with us again. And that is the household of Caiaphas, even if it's attached to a just cause. Cause don't matter. It's your heart. Every movie displays this. And the people of God, starting with me, watch this. And we slowly believe that this is the way differences are settled. How does Jesus handle this? I think the secret is there at the end of this passage in verse 53 and 54 of chapter 11. This is what it says. Once it was clear that the three powers had come together and had determined to kill him, Jesus himself withdrew with a small circle of his friends out near the wilderness. And I think that's the secret. When you sense the power over you is corrupt and abusive, it is to withdraw rather than to attack. 
but withdraw with the circle of your friends. And while you're there, pick up one of the Psalms <laughs> and let the Psalms give you a language, a grammar of lament. In Psalm 57, written by David while he was hiding from the power of King Saul. He articulates in verse one, a coming disaster. In verse two, he says that his life is in God's hands. In verse four, he says that his enemies are attacking mostly with their mouth accusations. It sounds an awful lot like what's happening in John 11 when Jesus is running away from the powers that are seeking him. And two themes emerge in that great psalm. One is complaint and the other is surrender. There in these two themes is our salvation when we deal with corrupt power. In complaint, we tell the Lord exactly what our enemies are doing. We plead our own innocence. We call for God to bring justice to those who are using systems, laws, and sometimes brute force status, positions to have their way. That is the language of complaint. But then in the same moment is the language of surrender. Where we say to the Lord, but my life, O oh God, is in your hands. I hide under your wing as a place of refuge. You are my protection in my defense. Now listen, we must be careful not to hurry too quickly from the one to the other. We have a tendency, we evangelicals, to elevate praise and surrender and not worry so much about complaint. But it is essential that we take our time complaining and giving voice to the power that is abusive. And it's essential that we say these complaints to God about others, not to others about God. And while we complain in the same breath, profess our total confidence in the outcome. In the midst of the struggle for civil rights in America, Martin Luther King called his people to higher ground. He called them to love their enemies. He called it the strength to love. He said that we must love our enemies because hatred only incites more hatred. 
Hatred scars the soul and distorts the personality, but love alone transforms our enemies and love will make us sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. At the end of that sermon on loving our enemies, he writes words that I think apply to many of us today that find ourselves in a culture of resistance. He writes, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We shall meet your physical force with our soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. But throw us in jail and we will still love you. Send perpetrators into our community and beat us until we are half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured of this, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win our freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to the heart and conscience of the nation that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. If you want to win, lose. with integrity. And it will be your life, not your arguments, that convert the other side.